This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to another episode of Talk and Ball. I'm Pat Leonard, New York Daily News NFL columnist and Giants beat writer. I want to talk about a trend that I see in the NFL right now. And yes, you look at the standings and it breaks down this way. Hindsight is 2020. But what I see in the 2022 season more than anything right now is that good coaching is producing results and bad coaching is putting teams behind the eight ball. Again, I know the the standings kind of bear out the argument for me, but teams like the Philadelphia Eagles and how creative they've gotten on offense with Nick Sirianni to cater their system to what Jalen Hurts does well. You look at the New York Giants and the fact that on both sides of the ball, they are flexible, they're versatile, they adjust well in games. I've watched them outcoach several teams already. It's why they're five and one, whether it was going up against Baltimore, a coaching staff that is revered around the league. They certainly outcoach the Green Bay Packers in London. But even Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, you know, a team that ever since Brady left has been doubted. Belichick gets doubted. Anytime the Patriots don't look like one of the best teams in the league, people love to say that he's falling off. But now Bailey Zappi has won two straight games, and the Patriots have been dominant against lesser opponents. And it's no shock to me that Bill Belichick and the Patriots are bludgeoning teams like the Browns. And Kevin Stefanski does some things well, but Bill Belichick can outcoach that team. You look at the Detroit Lions and what they did to Detroit. Bill Belichick versus Dan Campbell. These results are not surprising. Even the Seattle Seahawks, you know, Pete Carroll, a guy who took a lot of heat for uh, Russell Wilson being hindered in the offense and the game management that Carroll and Seattle ran during his time, especially later on in Wilson's time there. Look at what's happening or not happening on offense in Denver. And then with Pete Carroll and Seattle getting the most out of Geno Smith putting him in a position where he is playing the best ball of his career. The defense obviously needs work. The team, let's face it, was more in a rebuilding phase than anything, but they're three and three after six weeks. And I look at these good coaches and these coaches with pedigree, Mike Tomlin, for example, taking down the Buccaneers and Todd Bowles without four starters in his secondary. Andy Reid and the Chiefs, Buffalo Bills, obviously they have the quarterback, Sean McDermott, but the coaching staffs are solid. The culture's uh, reinforced. The Atlanta Falcons, Arthur Smith, a younger coach, not one of the established ones, but creating a game plan around Marcus Mariota. You know, an offense that really looks more like a college tape than anything to beat the San Francisco 49ers. Obviously, Kyle Shanahan's team is banged up with injuries, but Smith deserves a lot of credit. And that's a team that nobody had doing anything this season that is winning some games, competitive, and is difficult to stop. And when you, just like the Giants, you look at the roster and you look at the record, 
you look at the stats and you look at the record, why doesn't it add up? Well, because the coaches are getting the most out of what they have and because they are putting their teams in a position to succeed while others are not. No coincidence that you look on the other end. The Denver Broncos under Nathaniel Hackett can't figure it out. Inconsistencies in game management, uh, lack of understanding of time management. Even now we're dealing with the fact that Melvin Gordon, who you know was getting too many snaps, a lot of people thought when Javante Williams was on the field. Now Williams gets hurt and Latavius Murray comes in and Gordon gets benched for Latavius Murray. But now going into week seven, Nate Hackett says that Melvin Gordon's going to start. I mean, these are just storylines and ideas and thought processes that they don't add up and you can't win in the NFL without leadership at the top. And if to you or I, or anybody sitting on their couch watching a game, when you see inconsistencies, when you see players giving that look on the sideline, when you see Jerry Judy erupting like he did, you know, it was KJ Hamler a couple of weeks ago in the end zone when they lost now it's Jerry Judy on the sideline talking to Melvin Gordon. Gordon standing there quiet, but obviously not happy. You know, that that's that's in danger of exploding in, in Denver. And the Jets red hot going into mile high. It, this this could be it. This could be the week. Keep an eye there. But even places like Washington, Chicago, uh, staves that even if like Eber, Matt Eberflus, obviously there's some things he's doing really well in Chicago with a rebuilding team. I think they're very tough, but there were some game management decisions in the Giants win over them, like a fourth and two deep into the red zone, uh, not going for it, kicking a field goal um, early on when points were at a premium. I, I just feel like um, the edges that are created in this league right now in a league that's been never been tighter are occurring on the sidelines. They're occurring upstairs in the boxes of the coordinators. And I attended the NFL owners meetings this week in New York city in downtown Manhattan at the Conrad hotel and uh, Rich McKay and the NFL, they were, they were saying that they're proud that it's never been, the parody's never been greater. It's never been more even every fan of every team every week has a team that can go on the field and has a chance to win. And this is what the salary cap does. This is what every professional league wants is there to be no standout teams for everybody to be even. And so everybody tunes in. Uh, The Buffalo Bills to me seem like the clear standout above the rest, though I think Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs have announced themselves time and again as somebody you cannot overlook. And the Philadelphia Eagles, obviously, without a loss and with that roster, if their offensive line stays healthy, they are the real deal as well. But by and large, this league is so tight. The margins are so thin. I think we're seeing scoring is down. Game management and late game decision-making and scheming is at a premium. And I think what we've seen so far at the top of the league in these standings, Philly, Giants, Patriots kind of climbing back here. Atlanta surprising people versus the Denver's, the Los Angeles Chargers who are continue to get less out of their roster than people believe. The Cincinnati Bengals even on the offensive end, taking themselves 
quite a while here to find themselves under Zach Taylor, where you know Joe Burrow and the Bengals obviously represent the team in the Super Bowl last year, and just just inconsistencies that if you can put these players in a position, if you can get them to the fourth quarter and then give them that extra edge. We watch it here in New York with Martindale scheming blitzes. Don Martindale and the Giants, by the way, now lead the NFL in blitz percentage at 43.7% through six weeks. Or maybe it's Mike Kafka and Brian Dable and the Giants offense uh, scheming a wheel route to Matt Breda out of the backfield um, in a heavy formation, you know, late to get important yards. These are just edges, you know, around the edges in, in tight games that are making the difference. And I think that's why we're seeing teams surprise people. And I think that's why we're also seeing teams like the Arizona Cardinals with Cliff Kingsbury slip off is because when the games are tight and when it comes down to fundamentals and who is teaching best, I think what we're seeing right now is the best teams are also the most well-coached teams. and it's more difficult at the moment in the NFL with it so balanced by the salary cap and parity at an all-time high. There aren't a lot of teams with the kind of talent across the board to just lift themselves out of bad coaching decisions and a rut that they might find themselves in. But enough of me droning on because I have such a great guest this week. I want to get right to him, Chris Canny. Let's hear from Chris on the Giants, on the Jets, and on the entire NFL. All right, welcome back to Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. We have a very special guest this week, Super Bowl champion, ESPN analyst, co-host of Canty and Carlin on ESPN Radio. He is the one and only Chris Canny. Chris, thanks so much for joining me, man. And Pat, thanks for having me on. I was trying to figure out why it took you so long to have me on your pod. This is awesome, man. <laughs> Especially because... We have a connection. So congratulations, first of all, on getting married. Thank you. And I know you I know you saw our guy, John Paradiso, to make that happen. Am I oh, right? no doubt about it. Paradiso took care of me, and my wife couldn't be happier, not only with the engagement ring I got it, but she also loves her wedding band. So shout out John to John Paradiso. Paradiso. Yeah, Johnny P down in the Bowery. Go check him out. So, Chris, we're here to talk football, and this is an NFL podcast, but I cover the Giants as well, and we got to start there, 5-1. and one. You told me in May at a charity event in Manhattan about Kayvon Thibodeau. You said, this kid's going to be a leader. You told me that back then before he'd played a single game. Here he is, sack fumble on Lamar Jackson to get a win. Why did you know that back then? And what are you seeing from the Giants rookie so far that impresses you? Well, there were a couple of things. First off, the dominant trace that he showed at Oregon, the first step is what jumps out to you. And then just the relentlessness that he played the game with. That's the things that you saw from his college tape. And then when you hear the kid talk in interviews, the confidence, the way that he carries himself, it was only a matter of time. Once he got the production on the field, players in that locker room are going to gravitate toward him. And Pat, there was no better way for a guy to get on the stat sheet with his first sack in the NFL than the way that we saw Kayvon Thibodeau on Sunday against Lamar Jackson, who is on the short list of quarterbacks that are MVP candidates through the first six weeks of the season. For him to have a sack fumble in that moment and essentially seal the game for the New York Giants, I mean, you couldn't have scripted it any better. And I remember taking to Twitter as soon as that play happened and I said, 
That's why you use premium picks on pass rushers. They're like closers in baseball. They win you football mm. games. And that's exactly why the Giants invested the number five overall pick on Kayvon Thibodeau. It seems like it's going to be well worth it in the end. So you played for Wink Martindale on the team with Wink. And what difference does it make for Kayvon as a pass rusher that Wink is his DC? Well, Wink is not going to be stubborn in his approach. He's going to look at the talent that he has and try to put guys in situations to do things that they do well and conversely, keep them out of situations where their deficiencies can be exposed. And I think Wink mm. does a masterful job of that. He also understands the personnel that he has and what his scheme might, might you know, what he might be comfortable with in terms of what his scheme is. He'll be willing to move off of that and go with more unconventional approaches, which is something that we're seeing with the Giants defense, right? Their base defense essentially is a 3-3-5. And you don't see that in the National Football League. That's more of a high school or college defense. And when I say 3-3-5, for the audience that's that's listening, it's three down linemen, three linebackers, and five defensive backs. You typically don't see that in the National Football League. But that's what the New York Giants on the defensive side of the ball have chosen to go with. And I think that's based on the personnel that they have. Um, and, and Kayvon Thibodeau figures into that because he's a – He's a very versatile player. You can line him up a lot of different places. And I think that will help KT in terms of being able to keep opposing offenses off balance and not necessarily knowing exactly where he's going to be at at all times. I'm glad you mentioned the the formation and kind of how the defense is aligned to maximize the personnel because I was actually just talking in the locker room with Dexter Lawrence about this. He's talking to Leonard Williams. And Leonard was saying that now moving over down the line here to Dexter, that Dexter Lawrence playing over the center at nose consistently, that he's always been a good player, but matching him up one-on-one there has just opened up essentially all of his traits really in one-on-one matchups with the center. And, uh, you know, from a, from a pass rusher standpoint, defensive lineman standpoint, like you've been there rushing the quarterback, what is it, what is the feeling like when a DC puts you in a position where suddenly all of your talents are maximized. And do you agree with me that we're kind of seeing Dexter Lawrence, Dexter Lawrence blossom into the player, you know, the, the best player he's been since he entered the NFL? Yeah, I mean, he's playing at an all-pro level right now. But before we get to his pass rush exploits, we got to talk about what he's doing on first and second down. I mean, they are shutting down the run. And I think that's the thing that people gloss over because playing the run isn't sexy. But you have to earn the right to rush the passer in this league. And the Giants defense has done a great job on first and second down of creating negative plays, getting teams off schedule, and then allowing Wink Martindale to dial up some of these exotic formations, these exotic pressures, and then sometimes just play Russian coverage with four. But the way that they're doing it is what allows Dexter Lawrence to get matched up one-on-one with the centers. When you go with a five-down look, that means – five linemen or linebackers, some variation of core combination of the two, when you have all of those guys on the line of scrimmage, the offense automatically checks into a big-on-big protection, which means one-on-ones across the board. Now, if all of those guys don't rush, then you're talking about, you know, uh, another line somewhere else along the line. But what that does with the interior guys, particularly the guy that's on the nose over the center, is for him to win early in the down in a one-on-one pass rush situation. 
And every defensive lineman will tell you this, Pat, the worst pass protector on any offensive line is the center, period. He's the worst. And so when you put your best interior rusher, and that right now I think it's fair to say that Dexter Lawrence is the best interior rusher because he's playing at a higher level than Leonard Williams right now. When you put that guy on the nose, on the center, good things are going to happen for your defense. It's going to create quick pressure in the quarterback's face. And that's how the Giants are able to take advantage of some of the miscues that opponents have, have been, I, I guess, prone to make going up against the pressure-style defense of Wink Martindale. Mm. No, that's a great explanation. And uh, last Giants question, you know, I, I look at this team, and I think a lot of people are looking at this Giants team. You look at the stats and you see the box score doesn't match up to the final score, <laughs> especially this Ravens game. example. But you've played on winning teams. You won a Super Bowl. Do you see the signs of these the good feelings, the 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 idea that winning is breeding winning? And is that a real thing in a locker room where, you know, the Giants don't often look like the better team for the majority of these games? But does winning early just reinstill belief that it's going to turn for you every week? Well, here's what I'll say. The early results and them being able to do a lot of winning. Uh, at this portion of the season, it just serves to reinforce the messaging that Brian Dayball and this entire coaching staff have been preaching to this team since they got here earlier in this offseason. And so from that standpoint, I think the program and the development of the infrastructure is only going to take off from here. So I feel great about that part of it. Now, as it pertains to what's happening on the field and the results, uh, Bill Parcells said it best. The best players don't always make the best team, but the best team always wins. This Giants team, is, the sum of it is greater than the individual parts. So I think a lot of people have to get past just looking at the talent on paper and recognize the high level of execution that we're seeing, especially in the critical phases of the game. You look at the Giants defensively, they're a top five unit on third down. They're one of the best defenses in the red zone. That matters. They're top 10 in scoring defense. That matters. When it comes to your quarterback protecting the football, that matters. Coming into this season, Daniel Jones, 50 touchdowns to 49 total turnovers. This year, Daniel Jones, only four turnovers through the first six games. So that's a sign that it's trending in the right direction. He's doing a better job of protecting the football, not giving away possessions and not giving away field position. And I think they have an identity that's around, surrounded by Saquon Barkley and running the football. So the most important thing for the players and the coaching staff, the Giants know who they are and they know who they're not. And they lean into the identity that they've established through the first six weeks, which is what's going to make this team a tough out the rest of the way. Fun to cover a winning team for once, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but conversely, it's interesting you bring up turnovers. You're absolutely right about Daniel. But it was it was interesting watching the end of that game. And it's not Daniel Jones committing the backbreaking turnover. It's Lamar Jackson. And so shifting gears over to Baltimore, you have a team that you would expect at the end of this season to continue to be in one of the contenders in that in that category. But you look at Baltimore now, Chris, they've lost a 21-point lead to the Dolphins, a 17-point lead to the Bills, a 10-point lead to the Giants in the fourth quarter. Is it time to be worried that not only the Ravens, but then Lamar also in particular after this killer turnover, that this is going off the tracks and they're not going to be the team that we thought they were? 
No, I'm not worried about Baltimore, and I'm not worried about Lamar Jackson, and here's why. I got too much information to the contrary about Lamar, especially in the fourth quarters of games in his career in the National Football League. Coming into this year, Lamar Jackson in, in the fourth quarter in a one-possession game is 21-11. and 11. And you're talking about a guy that has 12 total touchdowns to only two interceptions. The guy is a baller, especially when it matters the most. Now, if you want to look at the turnovers that he's had in the fourth quarter this year, the first one against the New York Jets is a throwaway because that game was a runaway in week one. That doesn't matter. But he had two turnovers against the Buffalo Bills in the fourth quarter, two turnovers against the New York Giants in the final three minutes of that game. I would attribute that to a player that's pressing. It might be because the defense has allowed 45 total points and 379 total yards in fourth quarters in games. Or it could be that he's missing his number one receiver in Rashad Bateman. Remember, in the second half of that Bills game, he got injured in the third quarter, wasn't available for that fourth quarter, didn't play at all in the Giants game. So when you take away a quarterback's true number one receiver, it, it, it limits the answers that that player has, especially against pressure looks, which is what Wink Martindale was dialing up against Lamar. So I'm not worried about the Ravens. A lot of their issues are going to get better. Rashad Bateman could be back this week. Defensively, they're going to get David Ajabo, their second-round pick back. He's practicing now. Tyus Bowser is back practicing now. So those guys up front are going to be able to generate more pressure and alleviate some of the ails that the back end of that Ravens defense has experienced through the first third of the season. So Baltimore will be fine. They're well-coached. And, Pat, I'll say this, through the first third of the season, they're still sitting in the pole position in the AFC North. Baltimore will be fine. Good point. Good point. Along the same lines of wondering if a team is for real or it's time to be worried, I wanted to give you three NFC teams that everybody thought was going to be good and looks like they're struggling out of the gate. I want you to keep one, dump one, and wait and see on one. Now, obviously, you know you might, you might want to keep all of them, but okay. let's see if we can break it into the three categories. So I'm going to give you the Green Bay Packers mm-hmm. with Aaron Rodgers and a team that just looks like it's lost its way after losing twice in a row or to the both New York teams. You have the Los Angeles Rams with Matt Stafford turning the ball over and a bad offensive line. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady missing walkthroughs the day before the game to go to Robert Kraft's wedding and just discombobulated with Todd Bowles saying that guys are still living off of their Super Bowl. So which one do you keep? Which one do you wait and see? And which one do you dump? Green Bay, Rams, Tampa. Oh, Pat, I thought you were going to make it tough on me. This is easy. I'm going to keep the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'm going to wait and see on the Green Bay Packers, and I'm going to dump the L.A. Rams. Wow. Yeah. So here's my logic behind it. With with the Tampa Bay Bucks, they're going to get help. They're going to get reinforcements, especially with that offensive line. Ryan Jensen is going to come back at some point this season. Luke Gadecki and Shaq Mason, they're still trying to figure it out. There's a lot of new when it comes to that offensive unit, and I think that's impacting Tom Brady, especially when you consider that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, offensively, the worst run game in the NFL, period, the worst. So they're asking a 45-year-old quarterback to throw them past a shaky offensive line. I, I, I just it, It's unrealistic what they're putting on Tom Brady, but I will remind people, that when Tom Brady first got to Tampa in 2020, through the first six games of the season, his QBR was 57. If you look at Tom Brady through the first six games of this season, his QBR, 57. Tom Brady will be fine. This team is starting off slow because there's a lot of new 
on this roster. There's a lot of moving parts, especially on the offensive end, which affects the quarterback. A lot of guys in and out of the lineup, Chris Godwin, Julio Jones, Cameron Brake, guys in and out of the lineup. This team has been in flux. So let's just pump the brakes. They'll be fine. And then we also have to consider the division that they play in. It's the NFC South. It's a pretty low bar to clear. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be in the playoffs. And here's the thing. I think their defense will give that offense time to figure it out. Now, when we move over to the Green Bay Packers, I'm concerned because it doesn't feel like the Packers have a clear path to the playoffs like we've seen in the Matt LaFleur era of things. By that, I mean they're not the team to beat in their division. That belongs to the Minnesota Vikings, who right now have a a two-and-a-half game lead knowing that they hold the head-to-head tiebreaker because they won against the Pack in week one. I'm concerned about the Packers because the issues that they have aren't leadership issues. I mean, aren't talent issues. They're leadership issues. That's the biggest thing. It's not the talent on the roster. And people say, well, Devontae Adams is gone. Well, yeah, Devontae Adams missed seven games in the Matt LaFleur era of Packer football. The Green Bay Packers are undefeated in games that Devontae Adams didn't play. So it's not just Devontae Adams being missing. Uh, On defense, they have seven first-round draft picks. So talent isn't the issue on that side of the ball, yet that unit can't seem to stop the run. When I hear Aaron Rodgers come out and say that they need to simplify things, and then the head coach follow that up with, I don't even know what that means, it's clear that there is a discord within the relationship between Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers. And then Aaron Rodgers on Pat McAfee's show yesterday comes out and says, him and Brian Gutekunst, the GM, have a great relationship, and they're talking about potential trade options out there. I will say this. For the Green Bay Packers, there is no silver bullet in terms of a player that you can trade for to automatically fix things. It's a Mm -hmm. leadership problem, and this has been brewing for some time, and now it feels like it's coming to a head. All that being said, there's a lot of parity in the NFC. There are six teams that are three and three. And I would argue that Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback of any of those teams that are three and three. So I will give the back-to-back MVP the benefit of the doubt when it comes to being able to figure it out. But it feels like the Packers this season are going to have to go the wild card route if they're going to get in the postseason. Now, Mm. that brings us to the L.A. Rams. I don't know how they overcome that offensive line. I don't know how they overcome the lack of a running game. And them benching Cam Akers and going with Henderson and not really getting the production from that position, it only exacerbates the issues that they have up front. And defensively on the back end, they're not as dominant as they once were. I think the loss of Von Miller is significant in terms of having a bookend for Aaron Donald. You know, Sebastian Joseph Day being gone makes a difference. So all of these things, all of these losses become hard to overcome for the L.A. Rams. Um, I said it before the season. I didn't think the Rams are going to be a playoff team. And it feels like they're proving me right. If you go back and look two weeks ago against the Dallas Cowboys, was there any doubt that the Dallas Cowboys were going to win that game? None at all. None at all. I mean, and that's the thing that I I can't believe I'm saying this, but the lack of depth and their organizational philosophy with F them picks has gotten them in a situation where they don't have the ability to replenish the ranks when they have an exodus of top-tier talent. That's where the Rams are at. 
dumping the Super Bowl champs. I, hey, th- that's great logic, man. The amount of information you retain on all these teams throughout the league, not to patronize you, but this is why Chris Canny is the best, man. You could give him any one of these 32 teams. He knows it as well as if he was on the daily beat. And Chris, the one thing you pointed out too, that the thing I can't get my head around of these three teams that you mentioned, why is Green Bay's defense bad? I don't understand. They, they were so good last year. You mentioned all the first round picks on the defense. Uh, you know, Jair Alexander, I've I've watched him every year. I feel like he's one of the best players in the league nobody talks about. Yep. I just d- don't see why they haven't figured it out. You know, that obviously you said you pointed out to the real problems right at the top, but their defense is just, it's not, I thought it was going to be the best in the league, but it's not only is it not even close, it is a an Achilles heel for them right now. No, it is. And you brought up the secondary. Think about this. They've got three first-round draft picks in the secondary with Stokes, Savage, and Jair Alexander. I mean, three. And yet they're allowing quarterbacks to complete 71% of their passes, which is by far the worst in the National Football League. 71%. It's historically bad, Pat. That pass defense is awful. And then on top of that, they can't stop the run. And there is no excuse about – a new defensive scheme because Joe Barry was there last year when they were a top 10 unit. So I don't understand why the Green Bay Packers defense all of a sudden isn't good. And you look at their second half scoring differential, not only can the Pack not score points in the second half on offense, they can't stop anybody on defense. They're minus 37 in second half scoring differential. That's good for 30th in the NFL. What the hell is going on with the Packers? I don't know. But again, when we start talking about their issues, it's not talent. It's leadership. They don't have the leadership at the top of the organization to set the agenda for the rest of the locker room. And that's why you have, dare I say, one of the most underachieving teams in the National Football League. Wow. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I'll just say from somebody who was in London at that Giants-Packers game, you know, just being objective about it, I watched a one coaching staff outcoach the other. Yes. I, I I absolutely saw that. I mean, it was not hard to see live and the tape only shows that too. Credit to the Giants, less credit to the Packers. And while we're talking to Green Bay, I want to shift to another team, a local team who is exceeding expectations. And that's the New York Jets, Robert Sala's New York Jets. Chris, early on, this looked like a team that you know, same old Jets mistakes. Um, is the quarterback any good? Are they going to figure it out? And suddenly they are just punching teams in the nose and and not letting up, you know, throughout through the fourth quarter. I'm talking to Woody Johnson at the owners meetings. He's got his chest all puffed out saying, you know, the, the NFL in the world is better than when New York wins. Mm-hmm. Hard to argue with him. Yep. But why is this happening for the Jets? Why did everything suddenly snap and click? And they're going into – Lambo and knocking off the Packers? Well, I'll say this. I think it starts with their defense. And I would argue with anyone that disagreed on Quentin Williams being the second best defensive tackle in all of football. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's been that good. You're talking about five straight games with the sack. And this guy also had a block kick that was instrumental for this team's success up in Lambo. But think about it. You're talking about the, the, the Jets of all of all teams going into Pittsburgh three weeks ago and winning there where they've only won one game since 1969 before we saw um, against the Steelers and Kenny Pickett. 
Then you're talking about them going into Lambeau and winning that game. These are not games that people had the Jets winning on the bingo card coming into this season at all. But I think that their head coach has finally got them believing on the defensive side of the ball. It helps to have a shutdown corner like Sauce Gardner, who is amongst the NFL's best, even as a rookie. Uh, and then you see what they're doing on the offense with Brees Hall in that running game, and then Garrett Wilson and Corey Davis in that receiving core coming up with timely plays. So I, I think it's much more about the defense and the running game and the special teams leading the charge. And then Zach Wilson, for lack of a better term, being a passenger uh, to, on this team's ride to success. But I, I, I mean – you have to feel good about the development of the program that Rob Sala's had. I mean, it, it it sounds crazy. I remember he said that whole receipts thing. It, it sounded crazy at the beginning of the year, but you're starting to see some of the 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 the, the work that they've put in start to pay off. And I think yeah. there there's something tangible there that Jets fans can believe in, and and you have to feel good about. It. Listen, it's a really really good defense, and they're only going to get better. Because with each passing game, they're going to get more confidence. Tom Coughlin used to say this all the time. Confidence comes from demonstrated performance. And going on the road and winning in Pittsburgh and winning in Green Bay is only going to make this group a little more brash. It's only going to up their swag. And I would I would suspect that this is going to be a team that nobody wants to play moving forward. Think about this, Pat. And we haven't been able to say this. If the playoffs started today, the New York Jets would be the sixth seed in the AFC. How Amazing. wild is that? If Amazing. the playoffs started today, the New York Jets are in. That is okay. insane to me. Though I, I will say this. Now, this isn't fair to Zach Wilson probably because obviously he's been winning games even if he's been managing them. But I I still have questions about him. And if they continue playing well defensively and in the running game, I don't know if they're not better with Flacco at quarterback. And I know, listen, I know that's a crazy, I know Jets fans would probably tackle me right now for saying that, <laughs> but I just mean, if you get down later into this season and the team's winning, but maybe he cost you a game with some turnovers, listen, for the future, you want the kid to play. Yeah. You don't want to harm that, but I, you know, not, not to stir it up too bad here in New York, yeah. but I look at them and I just say, could the veteran manage the game the way they are built if we're actually talking about a team that's in contention down the stretch? Am I crazy for saying that or no? You're not crazy for saying that, but now you get into a question of the organizational philosophy. Is this season about the development of the culture or the development of the quarterback? That That's the question that you have to ask. I don't know Great the question. answer. I don't know what Joe Douglas and, and Rob Sala – or landing on if you pose them that question, but if it's about the development of the culture because there's been so much losing, then there's an argument to be made about Joe Flacco being the quarterback. But if it's about trying to develop the quarterback, knowing that this is probably not going to be a Super Bowl year for your team, then I can understand that part of it too. Like I, I get yeah. both sides of it. I, I I probably would lean toward playing Zach Wilson because it's a quarterback-driven league and you did invest the second overall pick in the kid. So you have to let him play. You have to build up his confidence. And I think them continuing to win games is going to help that. Yeah. Um, and as that defense continues to become more dominant, I think that'll open things up for Mike LaFleur in terms of the risks that he's willing to take with Zach Wilson. And then we'll see whether the kids' talent and development can take him there. But that's ultimately what it'll be. But if you look at most quarterbacks that come into this league that have success, they usually have a strong defense and a strong running game to support them if they develop properly. The Jets have that in place right now, 
And so I think they're in position to get answers about Zach Wilson, if nothing else. No, that's a good point. And and you, you mentioned Quinn and Williams when watching the Giants Jets in preseason and even without, you know, the, the starters obviously aren't playing a lot, but I was just stunned at how many guys like they would take a starting defensive lineman off, put another guy on and he was a dog. And then they would take him off and put someone on and he was a dog. And I know Salah's defense is built on that four man rush and guys just getting upfield. But, you know, obviously, you know, a lot about a strong pass rush. And we started this conversation about pass rushers and cave on Thibodeau and using high picks on them. But you can see why it's got to be tiresome to play the Jets right now because they are just they are relentless and they are deep on the defensive line. I wanted to stay in the AFC East real quick, because I don't know if this is a controversy. It definitely seems like it's become one in New England. Uh, Bailey Zappi, the Zapster, the rookie, has won a couple starts here. And obviously, Mac Jones working himself back from what people believe is a high ankle sprain. Do you think that there should be or is a controversy in New England at the quarterback position when Mac Jones gets healthy? Um, is it is it better for them to roll with the rookie? Or do they need to go back to Mac because – he, he was the first-round pick, and he was the starter before he went down. I don't think there's any question who the better player is. It's Mac Jones. But I do think this is an opportunity for the Patriots to send a message to Mac Jones. Um, according to ESPN's Mike Reese, there has been a little bit of a rift between Mac Jones and Bill Belichick and the organization, um, and it's stemming around – Josh McDaniels departing to be the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders and then bringing in Joe Judge and then Matt Patricia, former defensive coordinator, to spearhead what happens on the offensive side of the ball. And I think there are people in Mac Jones' camp that believe that they would have been better served, and Mac would be better served, if the Patriots went after a former Belichick assistant in Bill O'Brien who was out there um, and have him run some semblance of the offense that Mac Jones you know, ran as a rookie and essentially became a Pro Bowl player under. So I think that layer to it, um, coupled with the injury, opened the door for Bailey Zappi to play. And and now that even Mac Jones, as he gets closer to being ready to play, I think the Patriots don't mind keeping him on ice as long as they're winning games in order to send a message to the kid that it's going to be done our way, the Patriots' way. This is not something that's above Bill Belichick in terms of sending messages to players. He comes from the Bill Parcells school of thought, and Parcells was masterful at finding different ways to send messages to players, including keeping them on the bench longer than they wanted to be there. So um, I don't think this is something that Bill Belichick is above. Again, as long as they're continuing to win games, this is not going to be a problem. But there's no question in my mind who the better quarterback is for the Patriots. It's Mac Jones. I had a chance to see – um, the Patriots and the Ravens up close and personal a few weeks ago when they played in Foxborough. And even in that game, you could tell, okay, Mac Jones is a good football player, even though he's not necessarily protecting the football the way that he should. You can tell he's a mm. good player. And, yeah. and I just, I don't know that they're ready to move off of Mac Jones for Bailey Zappi. I don't think that we've seen enough from Bailey Zappi to definitively say he's a better player or presents a better chance of winning games than Mac Jones does. Interesting insight there, Chris. Sounds like the kind of uh, conversation or situation that could 
get worse with losing or go away with winning, right? <laughs> as yeah, like winning is the ultimate deodorant, right? So as long mm. as they continue to win games, it'll be fine. But mm. um, I imagine that Mac Jones will, will step in and be the starting quarterback sooner rather than later. Great. And I wanted to get you out of here with a couple league questions. Um, number one is, as a, as a former player, so right now the NFL is proud that parity has never been better than it is now. So any given week, any game, anyone can win. All the games are close. The margin of victory is lower than it's been in previous years. It, as players in the NFL, would you rather see the cream rise? Um, you know, would you rather be a t- on a team like if you're earning your keep and doing what it takes that you can separate yourself from the pack? Or does it make it more competitive and enjoyable that because of the salary cap, because of all these restrictions on how t- how GMs can put a team together, that every week becomes kind of a dogfight. Oh, I like it. I like every week being a dogfight. I like the, that every game means so much. Every win or loss is is huge in terms of the magnitude and the implications. Like, give me that over having three or four dominant teams in the league. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I like yeah. the parity. I like. Um, the competition, and if 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 I'm being frank, the fact that we have a 17 game schedule instead of a 16 game schedule schedule means we have a larger sample size to give teams the opportunity to form an identity and figure it out. We got to remember, there's only three preseason games now. There aren't four, and most of these organizations aren't playing starters in the preseason. So the first quarter to the first third of the season is you know, kind of a feeling out process for a lot of people. It's 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 what the preseason used to be. It's like what the third preseason game used to be, the dress rehearsal. You're just getting that now in the regular season. And I know right. fans don't love it because it's not the, the sharpest brand of football, but for teams that are trying to compete for championships, it's not about winning in September and early October. It's about winning November and December in hopes of playing in January and possibly February. So, um I like the competition. I like the parity. I like the fact that you have 10 teams in the NFC right now that are 500 or better. Like to me, that's what makes the NFL exciting because there are so many possibilities in terms of how this thing is going to play out. Love it. Love it. No, it is. It's crazy. Any given week. I mean, I hate every Wednesday, the daily news sends me the odds for the full week. Picking games has never been harder because Half of these games go to the last play, the last, you know, the last minute. It doesn't even matter if the team one team's five and one, the other's one and four. I mean, they're all going down to the wire, but it does make it a better watch and more fun. Last question, and I know, uh, d- does it crush your soul as a former pass rusher and defensive lineman watching these roughing the passer penalties being called on the likes of Grady Jarrett, Chris oh. Jones? I know the NFL saying that the penalties are down, but these these calls affect games. And let me just say this. I'm at the owners' meetings in New York this week, and Troy Vincent from the NFL essentially laid bare this admission. He said, people watch our game because of our star young quarterbacks, and we're going to protect them, and we're not moving off that philosophy. So as a former pass rusher, you not only those calls, but then you hear that. Like, how does that make you feel about the game and how it's being officiated and run? It's frustrating because I think Troy Vincent and the NFL League office are conflating issues, right? Because this all started with Tua being initially injured 
in that Buffalo Bills game, right before halftime, the Matt Mulatto hit where he hit his head on the turf and it was clear gross motor instability. And then what we saw four days later against the Cincinnati Bengals where he gets knocked out right before halftime and his hands are fencing, his arms and fingers are locked frozen. I think the NFL had that knee-jerk reaction because everybody was talking about it, not just the sports talk shows, but national nightly news shows were talking about it. Good Morning America was talking about it. When that happens, the NFL is going to have a reaction because the NFL also knows that since 2008, you're talking about 39% decline in youth football participation. 39%. Parents are starting to be concerned about the concussion issues and how the NFL handles it. And who are the premier players? The quarterback. So anytime that happens to a quarterback, that's when it becomes a part of the national news cycle, not just a sports story. And so that, to me, is the part that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you view it through the lens of the Grady Jarrett hit or the Chris Jones hit. Grady Jarrett in particular, because with the established quarterback strike zone that happened in the wake of Tom Brady around a decade ago, yeah, it was... Any hits at the neck or above or at the knee or below were out of the picture. Like, you were going to get a roughing call if that happened. So you have to hit a quarterback in the middle of his body. Well, Grady Jarrett did that. He hit Tom Brady in the middle of his body, wrapped him around, pulled him on the ground. Brady lands on Grady Jarrett before he lands on the ground. There is not a safer way to tackle a quarterback than what Grady Jarrett did. Now, because what Grady Jarrett did looks similar to how Tua was tackled in the Bengals game, the flag came out. And I think the NFL and the officials, there's a concerted effort that when in doubt, we're going to throw the flags because we got to protect the quarterbacks. More importantly, we got to protect our business because we can't have this type of storyline with another quarterback suffering a brain injury being front and center. Now, when we go back to what took place with Tua in the Buffalo Bills game, had the NFL the Miami Dolphins, and the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant done their jobs when Tua got hit by Matt Milano, we wouldn't be in this situation now where we're debating roughing the passer calls. I will say this. They're down, they were down 45% through week five of the NFL season, right? There have only mm-hmm. been 24 roughing the passer calls through week five. Pat, 14 of those calls came in week four and week five. The first week four game was that Bengals game against the Dolphins. So week four you had, and week five, you had 14 of the 24 calls that were on the season through the first five weeks of the season. Mm. You can't tell me it's not a knee-jerk reaction to what happened to Tua. You got in this situation with Tua because your own medical people didn't enforce a policy that you already had on the books. So when Troy Vincent passes the buck and blames defenders, rather than blaming the people on the sidelines that are responsible for protecting the players and the health and safety protocols, it frustrates a guy like me that made his living sacking quarterbacks. Chris, I couldn't agree more. One of the most intelligent people I know in in and around the NFL, Chris Canny. Chris, did you want to uh, say a little bit about your foundation? It seems like you're doing great great work there. I appreciate the opportunity to plug, Pat. Uh, ChrisCannyFoundation.org is where you can find it. We're always doing things in the tri-state with a focus on our youth. 
making sure that we empower them with the resources, the tools they need in order to build their dream. There are a lot of different ways you can get involved. If you want to mentor young young people, if you want to be a part of our reading program, if you want to be a part of service initiatives, or you just want to donate, go to chriscanny.org. You can find out more information. Get in where you fit in. And if it's not Chris Canny Foundation, there are a lot of other organizations in the tri-state area that are helping to make our community a better place. So I want to encourage you to get involved somehow. You can find him on ESPN, on TV, on radio, Twitter, Instagram. He's everywhere. Chris Canny, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. P-A-T, I appreciate you, man. All right, welcome back to Talking Ball. We're going to do the two-minute drill with Pat's picks. Going to use the FanDuel lines and go over some of my favorite picks for Week 7. Posted a 6-8 and eight record, so almost 500 in Week 6. So we're going to look to bounce back here. A reckless best bet play by me with the 49ers against the Falcons. Won't make that same mistake again. So let's start here. I love the Jets plus one and a half at Denver. Russell Wilson with a hamstring injury. The Broncos, 15.2 points per game, worst in the NFL. And the Jets kicker, Greg Zerline, 18 of 19 from 30 plus yards or 30 to 40 yards. That includes extra points. And six of eight on 40 or 50 plus field goal attempts. I like that in a close game. The Jets, 23.8 points per game, 10th in the NFL. Uh, and I just think that the Jets are riding high right now, even though Denver's defense is pretty good. I think Robert Sala's run game and defense are going to make it difficult on a Broncos team that honestly can get barely anything right right now and has a lot going on behind the scenes, not just with the football game that they're struggling to overcome. So I love the Jets on the road in another hostile environment after winning in Lambeau. The Jaguars, minus three against the Giants. I got burnt picking against the Giants, taking the Ravens last week. I'm concerned about Saquon Barkley's shoulder, his right shoulder. Looked like when he came back in the game late last week against Baltimore that he was doing all he could to avoid contact there. Obviously, he gutted through it impressively, scores the winning touchdown. He will play in this game, I expect, but I'm concerned that he's not 100%. And I think that even though the Giants have done so much so well early on and are five and one in their first six, I do believe that Jacksonville is well coached with Doug Peterson and has a quarterback in Trevor Lawrence who can beat the Giants defense through the air enough when it matters. And Travis Etienne and James Robinson, that one-two punch in the backfield is tough to deal with. We also have the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys, minus seven hosting the Detroit Lions who are one and four. This line scared me a little bit at first when I looked at it. Um, You know, the Lions are second in yards per game, third in points per game, and they're coming off a bye. But it looks like Dak Prescott's going to be coming back. And I think that a lot of the betting market is going to see this seven points, see that it's high and feel like Detroit can cover. But I don't think it's right to look at the Dallas Cowboys loss to the Eagles and feel like that means that this is going to be a tight one. I think the Cowboys defense is going to feast here and the de- and the Detroit defense is poor. And so, you know, Tony Pollard, CD Lamb, I do believe Dak Prescott and the Cowboys are going to roll in this one and it's going to be a blowout. Um, and another game I like and this is my best bet is the New England Patriots hosting the Chicago Bears 
on Monday Night Football. Seven and a half point favorites, which is a lot. And, you know, obviously it could be Bailey Zappi, the rookie again, could be Mac Jones with the high ankle sprain coming back. Uh, either way, though, the coaching matchup of Bill Belichick against Matt Eberflus and Belichick's defensive mind and figuring out how to not only fluster, but turn over Justin Fields, I think will result in a very lopsided performance. Again, we've already seen Belichick take Stefanski and Campbell to the woodshed with the Browns and the Lions the last two weeks. I think that continues here. And one game that I'm looking and not touching uh, is Packers minus four and a half at Washington. Now, for the daily news, I did take Washington when the line was Packers minus five and a half. At four and a half, I struggle. I love Taylor Heineke and what he brings. He adds some juice. He did go seven and nine as a starter last year, just wins and losses. Um, you, you know, and also the Washington defense on the flip side, though, is the eighth worst versus the run, giving up 131 per game. Uh, and so it's difficult for me to see <clears throat> are the Packers going to run the ball more with AJ Dillon and, and and Aaron Jones? Are they going to get back to a simpler ground and pound and take the air out of Washington's sails? It's hard for me to pick Washington, you know, in any game right now, given everything that's happening with the organization, let alone the team. Are they going to be a better team without Carson Wentz? Um, I do think they'll be a little bit more exciting. So that could mean a tighter game. Heineke did lose at Green Bay 24 to 10 last season. This game is at uh, FedEx Field in Washington. So we'll see. So that's a look but not touch. I did take Washington at plus five and a half. We will see. But that's all for this week with Talking Ball for Pat Leonard. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.